How do we make the world a better place? This is the underlying question our guest on this episode of the League of Visionaries podcast answers, not only in the interview, but with her life's work. Our guest is a remarkable development economist, speaker, and creator of transformation and sustainability strategies that lead to meaningful societal change. She has worked with major organizations from the public, private, and nonprofit sectors to enable genuine transformation through sound education, social, and governance principles, the ESG we keep hearing about. Her contribution has brought a fresh spark of creativity and caring in a field that can easily get mired in challenges and compliance checkboxes. And although she is very humble about it, her own community and volunteer work has been making ripples through the societal ecosystem. In fact, that was how I met her. Join me as we meet the inspiring Kalnisha Singh, and we talk about making the world a better place through the principles of development economics and ESG in this episode of the League of Visionaries podcast. Welcome to the League of Visionaries podcast by Yazzie Media. The League of Visionaries podcast is your place to meet visionaries, professionals, entrepreneurs, and other thought leaders with a visionary message to share. This podcast is for you if you too are a visionary driven by a deeper purpose in your work, your play, and your investments. I'm your host, Marie-Therese LaRue, the media strategist with soul and founder and owner of Yazzie Media Virtual Media House. Connect with this League of Visionaries as we explore the power of purpose and how to bring it to the world through your message. This season of the League of Visionaries podcast is brought to you by Totally Morpheus, creators of the Egg 3 Leadership Assessment. It's fast, it's fun, it's free, and it points the way to your living leadership legacy. Kalnisha Singh, we finally made it. It's not our first ride at the rodeo for recording this episode, <laughs> but I'm really, really delighted that we can be here. And it's actually the first League of Visionaries podcast. We're recording in front of people in somebody's home. Thank you so much for having us. And um, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. And of course, our big topic is your visionary message. Please tell our listeners more about what you do and where it's going. So, my visionary message is that I really fundamentally believe in a different way of being, right? A different way of doing business, a different way of building business, of building industries, economies, and a different way of existing within those systems. And I think that's the core of my message. And what I do is I help people, businesses, industries, design their strategies that are more human-centered, more inclusive, and more sustainable. So looking at the long-term vision and really creating systems that exist within the current ecosystem of being with a very, very human focus. And that is really <laughs> fascinating because your background is as, what is that nice word again? A development economist? Is a that development right? economist. And that is something that, um, it, it sounds very unemotional, unhuman to those mm. of us standing on the outside and yet... Um, you've explained to me before that maybe economics gets a bad rap because we don't understand how human it is. How do you humanize economics? It's really fascinating because, I mean, 
from my first lecture in economics ever, Economics 101, day one, year one, um, we're always taught that economics is the study of addressing human needs. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's right. the definition? That's the definition. Wow. So how markets, so places where humans transact with each other, are not designed, because nobody designs them, how they come about, right, to address the needs and wants of, of you know, the different people transacting. Mm -hmm. So at the very root of every economy, of every economic system and of economic theory, is the individual. And then the collective that is considered in economics is the household. Ah. Okay. Right. So, okay. um, the basic assumption in all economic theory is that humans behave in a rational manner, based on good luck with that one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> based on you know individual intrinsic needs, but then mm. once you once you become a householder or working in a household system, you make the best decision for the collective in that system. Mm -hmm. um, which, so at the core of it, all economics is about is how we relate with each other. It's actually such mm. a human science because it's easy mm. to hear the numbers, especially mm. you've heard me say this before as well, is I see the warm and fuzzy mm. side, the words, the pictures. I'm not so hot on the numbers. So when I hear about economics, I'm scared off. But knowing that there's a, a heart behind all those numbers and that it actually has a meaning is actually really inspiring. And you've been putting this to work, you speak about humanizing mm. um, economics and, and the workplace and business, but you've been putting it to use in ways that have become very trendy. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about the ESGs and you're going mm. to tell us what that stands for because for those of us uh, who, who are not so up to date with all these things, it, it's been so trendy and so much talked about and I've often seen the discussion open mm. up and uh, people talk about ESGs. I think you were in a discussion where we mm. were together and somebody said, what's ESGs? <laughs> so it's become very important. It's become a matter of compliance. It has become a matter of checking the boxes, but there's a heart again behind checking those boxes. How, how do you approach all of that? And let's start with what is an ESG? So ESG stands for Environment, Social and Governance. And the theory behind ESG um, goes back a long way, but the immediate history around why it's ESG is that there are fundamental principles of responsible investment that the UN devised after the 2008-2009 financial crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Wall Street crashed. And the premise of those principles of responsible investment is that you need to consider more than just the money. Um, in making investment decisions and purchase decisions, especially as an institutional investor when you're making investment decisions on behalf of your customers, who are people like you and I, right? Um, so they put together these principles and, and the bottom line is that when a company is measuring their performance, they need to consider, yes, of course, the financial performance, the money, but also the environmental factors, the social factors, and the governance structures within which they've created this financial ecosystem. This is especially important for visionaries who start their businesses, who start their uh, not-for-profits, who start their movements and their teams with the goal of having something really meaningful in place. And it's so encouraging that we've moved away from the 
business model where success is determined by profits and we're actually looking at success is the environment, success is the people who work for you, success is the, uh, the outcome that actually comes through this and even educating the shareholders because there are other stakeholders. There's more to it than money. Definitely. And it's really fascinating because it really is not a new concept. Mm. I mean, the considerations around what we now terming sustainability or ESG or impact first started probably in the early 1980s. Mm. Um, there was a series of large-scale oil spills. You know, the, the usual suspects were were doing business as they usually do and there were some huge um, oil spills. And what the sort of international economic communities realized is very counterintuitively, when oil spills happened, it was seen on paper to grow the economies of the affected areas. Because more people need to get involved. Because more people need to get involved, the cleanup operations, there was... Like you can imagine in a sort of coastal or island community where there was not much economic activity, all of a sudden people need to be flown in and journalists and so the travel industry is booming, the food industry is booming and Goodness. And of course, the places that have oil spills are usually kind of deserted. They're yeah. places where nobody goes or they're very quiet. Goodness. And yeah. so the world was like, literally the world, the United Nations, the world, people, the people, were concerned that economic measures are clearly not considering the larger impacts mm. of that economic activity. Because mm. it's very counterintuitive to say this country is better off because it had oil spill or was yes. the victim of you know, the mess that resulted from an oil spill. Yes, it's like solve the problem or create the problem so that you can solve mm. it and somebody wins. So, I mean, then the powers that are did what they did and, and commissioned a research exercise or a considered exercise to start defining or rethinking what these economic metrics are mm -hmm. and could be and how do we ensure that we we do business in an environment or in an ecosystem that is fundamentally sustainable, that considers the environment, that considers the people in that ecosystem larger than just the stakeholders within the business, right? The shareholders, okay. the employees. Um, and so this, this commission was called the Brundtland Commission because the person that chaired it was Mr. Munir uh, Brundtland in one of the Scandinavian countries. And resultant from their investigation, they came up with a definition of sustainable development, mm -hmm. being that sustainable development is development that meets the needs of the current generation without prohibiting the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Mm. Right. That mm. report was published in 1987. So long back. Mm. Because the buzz about things like the Sustainable Development Goals only came many years later. Many years later. And, and even I was surprised after spending time abroad coming back to South Africa, I was abuzz with the SDGs, the mm. Sustainable Development Goals and the nice little infographic that the UN had made available and everybody where I'd been, uh, I was at a university uh, teaching in, in Malaysia, and everybody was talking about this and I came back to South Africa and people had no idea what it was 
outside of some very small tree-hugging communities. Mm. And, uh, and the tree-huggers even threw it out because it came from the UN. So they didn't, mm. they didn't trust this baby, right? They were yeah. going, somebody's making money out of this and, uh, and being very suspicious about it. But how did it take so long for it to come into common parlance? That's a fascinating question. I don't know why it took so long. But what we, I mean, what we know about the world and how history works and how mm. history's been written is that there's lots of similar things that happen all around the world. You know, um, I think it was Elizabeth Gilbert that says, or in, in one of her TED talks, she says that, you know, when the universe decides to, like, you know, it's time for an idea to bloom, mm. that idea is sprinkled like glitter on, on the <laughs> earth. And whoever chooses to pick it up, picks it up, right? Mm. And this is why you have, like, you know, with the advent of electricity, Nikola Tesla in Europe and uh, Thomas Edison in the United States doing the same experiments at the same time. Mm. Right? You know, mm. ideas were sprinkled on the earth. Mm. Mm. Um, so at the same time that the Brundtland Commission were doing their thing and investigating what it means to be environmentally sustainable, uh, in South Africa, actually. Oh. A Reverend Leon Sullivan, um, the chairperson of General Motors at the time, and also a Lutheran priest, um, wrote a memo to his board of directors uh, saying that they don't want to do business in South Africa anymore because there are 11 principles of human rights that they're not seeing. Um, this was 1987, so there were a it, lot of questionable was, things happening It was happening early there. in the 1980s. Actually, the conversation started at the, at the, the end of the 70s into the early 80s. Mm. Um, and he published what, what are now deemed the, Leon, the, the Sullivan Principles, again adopted by the United Nations, and forms the basis of the S part of the ESG. Okay. The, the social, the social, social. Oh. impact, and it talks to human rights and... Uh, inclusive practices and diversity in the workplace mm -hmm. and all of those beautiful things that are again only becoming trendy now yes right originated in the 80s um, in South Africa <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so I, I feel like it does take I mean the idea is always the first movers are always first movers and they're first movers for a reason, mm. right? And it mm. takes a long time for the ideas to brew and mature and get to a point where there's collective action. Mm. And it does feel like now is the time for collective action. And so many people are waking up to it. Mm. Uh, so, so it's actually really exciting to see that there's so much dialogue about it. Um, at the same time, there's the trendiness and the trendiness is does mean, or the trendiness and the checkboxes, right? That it can become an issue that now people feel, oh, we have to have the compliance, and we've got to go check this box and check this box and check this box. But the fact is, if you really look at the statistics, when you're taking care of the people and you're taking care of the environment and you're taking care of the processes, suddenly the profits take care of themselves, which is yeah. almost why is it a surprise you know <laughs> it shouldn't have to be an either or yeah i think i mean the 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 profit conversation is always it's all has all, always fascinated me right because if you look at probably one of the most sustainable companies in the world is, is toyota motor corporation mm. existed for a hundred years have been consistently profitable for a hundred years but embedded in their philosophy is this very long-term planning and this oh. deep 
intentional um, consideration of not just their employees, but their employees' families and the communities that they live in and the environment and all sorts of, you know, interconnected things that influence how an individual performs at work, mm. right? And, and, and generational, it's like and generational. we're thinking what's going to happen to the next generation and yeah. that's very Japanese. Definitely. It's very, very Japanese. So, it, I mean, it's a theory of you're not going to be performing optimally at work if you're worried about where your kid's going to go to school. Mm. or are they going to be taken care of or if your mm. parents in you know as elders are they being taken care of where they need where they are so by creating the safety in those mechanisms by creating care homes and kindergartens mm. to is able to ensure that their staff don't have additional unnecessary concerns wow. at work yes um and that's what we call intergenerational thinking which is fundamentally sustainable mm. so they're spending the money now today to take care of the kindergartners and the, and the elderly, um, which is maybe affecting their profitability today. Right. But right. they are lengthening the time that their workforce is employed because there's no need to leave if everything's mm. taken care of. That's so interesting because a lot of the entrepreneurial drive that I hear, I hear a lot mm. of people starting their own businesses now or just going it alone and saying they want to get away from the corporate life they've lived, but also they talk about how they missed out on their parents because their parents were so absorbed mm. in work and work was so, that's work, this is life. And uh, that kind of work-life integration, it's like beyond a balance, becomes more important. So that's really fascinating because if my folks were taken care of so nicely by Toyota, I might actually think of working for them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what job they'd have for me, but... <laughs> no, but that's fascinating. And I, I think that as, as humans, as we become more aware of, you know, what are social responsibilities, um, because we know and acknowledge our own traumas, right? And we don't want to repeat those cycles. In, at home so we're questioning how we show up at work mm. Mm -hmm. right whereas previous generations were happy to emulate their parents maybe yes right? yes for us to consciously break cycles we don't want to emulate that behavior anymore as long as we're ready to accept that from our own kids it's a really difficult one I think um, yeah. but you see this global movement these global movements now mm. where where younger people are not willing to give their everything 18 hours a day to a job, mm -hmm. right? Thank goodness. Thank goodness. They don't need to. We don't mm -hmm. need to be driving home those, you know, archaic customs anymore. Mm -hmm. um, the world doesn't need it. We need different kinds of people. More centered, more authentic, more human people. And we need to raise a generation of people that are better than us. Wow, yes. Yes, well, there's another Toyota kind of example, mm. right? The new model should be mm. better than last year's model. Definitely. And uh, when it comes to generations, that's a challenge. That's really a challenge. And, and it's a challenge to each generation to say, what, how are we fostering that next generation? Not only through what we leave behind, but really our example yeah. as well and, and our day-to-day -day activities. It's really fascinating to hear about the many diverse projects that you've done because 
your expertise is relevant to so many different people and, and you've been able to jump in to consult or advise and more recently you've also been speaking from the stage even more actively because it's kind of happened organically in the past and uh, nowadays there's, there's such a demand for the information that you share. But you've had the most incredible variety in the projects that you've done. And one really fascinating one was a, a bit of work that combined the, uh, the art world with the world of transportation. Can you tell us a bit more about that adventure at a very exciting time in our history? Yeah, I feel like the, the taxi industry in South Africa has a really bad rap, right? Um, Motorists constantly complain about their lawlessness and recklessness. recklessness on the, the passengers road. complain because they always have to wait until the taxi is full, until mm. it goes anywhere. The passengers complain. And so, so it really is like, I suppose, this hotbed of controversy. Uh, the drivers complain too. <laughs> I had a couple of really good I think, conversations. I think everyone, everyone in the industry and around the industry complains about the taxis in South Africa. But what is fascinating for me is that this industry transports literally half the population of the country every day. 27 odd million people uh, rely on the taxi system, the taxi ecosystem, mm -hmm. to get to work, to school, to wherever they need to go on a daily basis, weekends included. Mm -hmm. right. um, the taxi industry was probably also the one, of, one of the only industries that that evolved out of apartheid. It was the only yes. one of the only industries where where non-white people were allowed to own businesses and mm. trade entrepreneurially and create something for themselves and you know self-empower to that level. And it's I mean it's considered by by the South African sort of commercial ecosystem the the taxi industry is deemed to be part of the informal sector. Mm. Um, but it's a very interesting, complex web of, you know, business behavior, economic behavior that drives this industry. So by no stretch of the imagination is it informal. It's very structured. It's very formal. Mm. It's just maybe not in a way that Western commercialization understands. Mm. Um, and given the reliance of, of all these people on that industry, you know, we, we couldn't be who we are without it. So having said that, we all know that the taxi taxi operators are constantly, every time there's new roads or a new mall being built and, and the resultant infrastructure around it, mm. there's a battle for route licenses, mm. right? Which is kind of at the root cause of the taxi violence and and, and things that we see from time to time, it's, it's these route licenses. Everybody wants to get their hands on a prime route, right? That, you know, that a lot of people um, will travel on. And so obviously increasing their profitability. We did a really interesting project around art. So the, the brief that we got at that stage was that the taxi industry as a collective uh, and the financial services providers to the taxi industry. So. Believe it or not, the taxi operators are able to access credit and insurance and, and all those good things that we would in traditional business. And providers of, of these facilities were concerned about how they are going to raise capital and how mm. are they going to endear this industry to the holders of capital, right? The people with money. 
Oh, because they're so maligned. Yeah. Wow, yes. Um, That's a challenging brief. <laughs> it is a challenging brief. Um, at the same time, they understanding that a lot of taxi operators, especially taxi operators that own fleets of vehicles and have been doing it for decades, are quite sophisticated businessmen, right? They are mm. the suits that you see in Santon and you'd never realize it. Yes. Um, and so what we wanted to do was create a, not create, but sort of present the taxi industry in a way that made sense to the people with money. Mm. Um, also present the taxi operators in a different way to society. So mm. it's not just this negative gangster connotation. Um, and the best way to do that is through art. It's through curating the social narrative in a, in a beautiful way so that an industry can be elevated and presented in a different way. And so that's what we did. We commissioned art from all across the country, young people who'd never uh, exhibited before, young artists. And it was a, a competition? It was a competition. Almost? It went, ran over a few years. So we had a few rounds of the same competition. They submitted their works uh, within a theme related to transp transport, transit, and there was a whole process where the taxi industry was themselves very, very involved in, mm. you know, viewing the art and selecting the art and, you know, coming to the event where the, where the uh, artists were awarded and all of this. And the one really cool thing that was an outcome of the process was the, art, the shortlisted artists had their works printed on vinyl and wrapped on a taxi. Mm -hmm. Right? So you had... Um, at the same time, you know, the, the glitter of ideas around the world, at the same time, all around the world, for whatever reason, there was this art and transit movement. So London cabs were being decorated and uh, New York subways were, had these beautiful murals painted. So it's like all, like, the world of art around the world decided art now needs to move with the people instead of people moving towards the art. Wow. Um, and we were very, very, like the timing was perfect, serendipitous, right, for us to be part of that global movement. My goodness. I, I love the way that it's contagious. I mean, what a story and, and what an opportunity for just the dialogue to open up. In any society, there are divisions between people and there are some of us who would never encounter each other. Yeah. But in South Africa, that is exacerbated by the legacy that we have of just divisions you know so so we have all our existing things that would be there anyway there are socioeconomic divisions anyway and there are geographical divisions anyway and there are language divisions cultural divisions but it's like there's just this added layer of just how many of us would not be talking to each other and opening that dialogue is magical because it it shows us what, what there is out there, you know? We don't know until we know. And especially people that we would never have a chance to hear of otherwise. An artist who would not have a chance otherwise. Or a taxi driver who would not be, uh, have access to the, to the world of art. Suddenly it becomes a, an open conversation that's beautiful. It really is. I mean, I think this creating these bridges between elements of society has been like my life's work, right? And I think it's because, I mean, I firmly straddle many aspects of society. If you 
consider my upbringing. I was raised in a household of kind of informal traders. And then I was propelled into sort of middle class by going to a Model C school um, and, and things like that. So very, very... So I've intentionally maintained that role as bridge, mm -hmm. right? Because in order to do good work in the economic development or transformation or sustainability space, you need to be able to articulate to the person you're serving in a language that they'll understand. Yes. The needs of the other. Yes. Yes. And because you straddle those different worlds, you understand both mm -hmm. and you can translate. And, yes. and that's a real gift. Yeah. And not an easy, uh, an easy responsibility. It's not an, yeah, but I mean, what's fascinating for me is that it's much easier than what people think. Because at the end of the day, we're all human. We mm -hmm. all breathe the same oxygen. Mm -hmm. um, we all have pretty much the same needs at the root of it. And we all want the same thing. We all want our kids to have a better experience than what we had. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of the bottom line. And, and remembering that, like, you're no different to me. Um, it helps a lot. Yes, yes, because that, the things that, that mm. uh, unite us are so much more than mm. the things that divide us in the end. For We're sure. just willing and open to see that and, and open to remembering that because sometimes there's an experience that for some reason alienates us or uh, for, makes us forget that there's a human on the other side of, of what a conflict that could just be a misunderstanding or just a lack of communication, a lack of connection. Yeah. So that is fascinating. And then another area that you've been involved in recently, uh, a week or two back, you spoke at the energy uh, event. You're going to give me the details here because what an exciting event to be a part of. And uh, you had some very uh, varied presentations there as well. Yeah, so the, the event was Future Energy Africa. Right, it is. could not be more relevant than mm -hmm. that because uh, energy mm -hmm. is a, an issue around the world and for South Africa, it is a burning issue. Not just South Africa though, right? The rest mm -hmm. of Africa as well. Mm -hmm. Energy access is very limited on our continent. Wow. Which, as South Africans, we're very spoilt and we don't realize the position <gasps> of privilege that we're in, oh. even with six hours of load shedding a day. Right. right. Um, the statistics are like phenomenal. There are about 700 million people on the continent who have never had access to electricity. Mm. Every day is Earth Day. Every day is Earth Day. Um, every day people are like searching for wood to burn coal, to burn fires, to make food. Um, and heat water or sanitize water, which is <clears throat> so we, we really are in a very privileged position. And the Future Energy Africa show caters to both markets, it caters to those of us that are privileged and want uh, renewable energy solutions and are thinking about alternative energy sources and to municipalities who are building their own solutions and things like that. But they also speak to impact investors and social entrepreneurs mm. who are trying to solve the problem of lack of access for the rest of the continent. Grassroots issues. Yes. Mm. Um, which is fascinating for me and it's a lovely place to be in because I can, I can speak to my people, I can speak to um, the commercial giants who you know, fund our work and we, I can speak to the people who are actually doing the work of addressing grassroots issues. Mm. Um, Again, straddling the different worlds. Eh? Straddling the different worlds. But also what's really interesting um, is that as South Africa, being who we are and in the position that we're in, 
we're kind of catalyzing a lot of interesting innovation and industrial development that the rest of the continent could benefit from. Mm. So we're talking about things like green hydrogen, uh, distributed microgrids, um, you know, all sorts of fascinating technical things that I won't get too much into. But, I mean, the real opportunity for green hydrogen on the African continent is that if the demand for green hydrogen continues on the same trajectory as it does, as it is, has been for the last three years, by 2050, we have the opportunity through developing the green hydrogen um, value stream to 100% mitigate all carbon emissions. Wow. Global carbon emissions. Wow. And that puts us ahead of the developed countries. So we have a real opportunity to turn things around for ourselves. Throughout this series of podcasts in this season, episode and episode and episode again, there have been people saying, look out because Africa has got opportunities because in some ways we've been held back, that we can just leapfrog the issues that are happening in the developed world. And if that happens, it means we actually have an unfair advantage that's born of what has been a, a disadvantage, if we know how to take those opportunities. It really is fascinating, and I really think it's something that we need to think about and talk about more, so that people are more aware of it, right? If you look at the food crisis in the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. right, and as South Africans, as Africans, we benchmark our lifestyles against those people that live in developed countries, right? Mm -hmm. We want the public health care, we want the, you know, transport systems, we want all of that stuff that they have. Mm -hmm. And now we realize people in developed countries with two income households can't afford food. Yes. Right? They're yes. exactly where we are. Yes. Um, so has the pathway they've walked been the right path? And yet, there's still this tendency to strive for where they have been. So it really is a good time mm. to ask those questions. Wow. Right. So, I mean, I think nobody's really talking about it. Those of us who know, know, mm. know like, oh, shame, you know, the grass isn't greener. Mm. But really, the grass is not greener. And it actually might be greener here. Mm. Because at least we have the space to grow our, our own food. Mm. And we need to have those conversations, I feel, with each other and you know at a grander scale so that those of us doing the development work and those being developed can dream of other things mm. yes I, i'm just so intrigued by the diversity of areas where your expertise is valuable because you bring something to so many different dialogues so many fields of industry and so many fields of just life at large but a lot of this has been with business, but you've also done really exciting work with not-for-profit organizations. And since we're speaking about food and growing your own, you've been involved in at least one fascinating food project. And uh, the one that comes to mind is the food garden at Slovo. Right. Okay. So, I mean, I think um, food is kind of... So, let me, let's take a step back. And I'll tell you how these projects happen, right? I love food, <laughs> by the way. And, and it, it, 
the, the fact that it can grow. <laughs> I'm just, it just never ceases to amaze me. You know, you plant a seed, you take care of it, and you've got a harvest. It's, I mean, does it get better than that? So it's really, so the world of development, especially economic development, is fascinating, right? Because like with most things, we develop theories based on what's happened over the course of history. Um, so take some entrepreneurial person to have an idea and mm -hmm. do a thing mm -hmm. that catalyzes a series of events and then economic theorists look back at this entrepreneur and the things that were catalyzed and they write a theory about it. And so for a very, very long time, um, at the crux of economic development theory was, or economic development practice, I should say rather, was building shopping centers. Mm. Right. So you build a shopping center, there's a hive of activity that happens. Right. So there's roads being built and then there's usually like housing that happens around the shopping center. And, and so you can see the economic activity happening. Mm. Right, in that area. You can almost feel the buzz. You feel the buzz, literally. Um, so, the ambition for most spaces that want development or want activity has been for the longest time, but we need to find an investor that is willing to build the shopping center. Right. So, in a rural community where there's all they have is land and the ability to grow food, the frame of reference for the people that have power is in order to develop, we need to build a shopping center. Which is endlessly wow. frustrating. Wow. Um, and so a large part of our work is re-helping the powers that are in those communities reimagine what development looks like in their context, mm. but also helping them understand. So we'll bring a shopping center here, but these are the negative impacts of the shopping center. So right. the negative impacts of the shopping center is that people will stop growing their own food. Because it's actually cheaper to go into a supermarket and buy the food than it is to try grow your own, right? Um, especially now because you maybe have some employment in the shopping center. Mm. Right? Mm. It's convenient. And suddenly well. the trade-off between time and money becomes a, a thing, exactly. right? Am I going to water my vegetables or am I just going to yeah. you know, go to work and spend my... The, a, a very reasonable amount of money, actually. It's certainly in South Africa, vegetables are remarkably well-priced. Yeah. But then what are, the other, what are the other impacts? We know that as South Africans we love credit. We love going to the shops and buying clothes on credit and, you know, everything and furniture and everything. I think we love it so much because collectively we don't understand it well enough, but anyway... Fully. Fully. But that's what happens, is that these communities start shopping with money that they don't have. Mm. And they end up in these collective debt pools. Mm. And then they, it starts out a whole other kind of economic ecosystem around loan sharks and... And all of this negativity that you then invite into your ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And as, I'm not saying that shopping centers are intrinsically bad, but if there's nothing else, if there's mm -hmm. no other economic activity in a space, wow. then maybe a shopping center is not the best idea. Yes. Um, and those are the sort of thought processes that we are going on with our clients and with the areas that we're serving. And the reason food is so fascinating is because Right now, today, we can show people 
specific examples of like developed economies mm. manhattan right where mm. people are falling over themselves to build urban gardens and mm. grow their own vegetables mm. and we'll show them tiktoks of, of people that are like wealthy people that are so excited to pluck their first tomato and things like this and it shifts their mindset it's like oh but these rich people are doing this they've got hashtags for and it we're, <laughs> <laughs> this is our way of life already, so maybe maybe we are a little bit superior, you know? Yeah. Or people moaning over the fact that their tomatoes haven't, you know, blossomed and mm. borne fruit. We get rust. <laughs> and <laughs> my, my usual problem yeah. with tomatoes. Yeah, mm. so it's just like re repositioning the, the vision a little bit, the dream a little mm. bit, to show, you know, show people what they do have, hold up the mirror a little bit. You yes. have this... You know, community of people who are able to grow their own food. That is mm. an asset. People who still know how, mm. the space, and also, um, well, it is unfortunate. You look at mm. South Africa with our pretty much a 35% unemployment rate. And uh, we have weather that accommodates it. And not working does mean that you probably have time. So this yeah. is something that, that many people in developed countries with very good jobs and amazing salaries do not have. No, for sure. Wow. So the food garden at Slovo is an interesting, it's an interesting experiment. Mm -hmm. So a bunch of us sort of got pulled into the Slovo project um, just by this vision of, you know, maybe we can do something different. Maybe we can change the trajectory a little bit. Mm. And the, I think what Rehana did really well was sort of, I don't know, remove some of the layers, you know, the, the fog. She just helped disperse the fog mm. around an informal settlement so that people mm. felt comfortable to move into that space and go look around and walk around and things like that. And although that's like kind of my day-to-day -day job, um, for many people involved in the project, it, it wasn't really... It wasn't part of their world at all. It wasn't part of their world at all. Mm. Um, and once, once the, the mist disperses and you realize that, you know, everybody's a human, everybody has the same needs, we yes. all want the same thing. Um, all the kids <laughs> want to create content for TikTok. Right. I have the same conversations with my 13-year-old that I have with the 13-year-olds in Slovo Park. Right. Um, everybody wants to go viral on TikTok. Everybody wants oh. to go viral. Everyone wants to create content. Everybody wants to be rich when they grow up. Like, it's all the like, same responses. <laughs> you can take the kid, you know, from a middle-class suburb and, and it's a kid from, from an informal settlement and you're probably going to get the same responses. Comes back to that thing of the okay. common denominator. Yes. Um, and so for all of us working in that space, it's like, it's a very, very, it's like a, a fractal of what reality is like for most of South Africa. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, and it gives us the opportunity quite selfishly to like understand our own identity in relation to that fractal that mm. represents most people. Mm. Mm. Um, and what's fascinating is that, so this is the in, inside story, which I suppose everybody's going to hear now, mm -hmm. is that what it's done for me is that like I, I come with my development solutions. 
Because mm -hmm. right? I have 20 years of experience, I clearly have the solution. It's hard to switch it off. Right, it's very, very hard to switch <laughs> it off. I have these solutions, they work really well. Um, I have a captive audience now. Let's go try it out. And what I realized of myself is that I expect different of the communities that I'm serving than what I expect of myself. How interesting. Right. So, and I feel like this is a challenge that most of us development practitioners have. So, I constantly complain about kids that have received bursaries on our programs and they're not concentrating at university and they're failing their classes and, you know, banking classes and things like this. Constantly complain about this stuff. But then I did that. Right. 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 So why do I expect different from, from them? That's a very honest revelation, but I think we can all relate to that to some extent. So the food garden got up and running. Everybody was really excited at the beginning of the process, mm. which we all are. We're very excited at the beginning, mm. right? Mm. And then the maintaining is difficult. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know I'm, I'm always very excited on the 1st of January to go to gym. And they're never 15 again. February. I don't know, there's some kind of slump. Something happens yeah. around Valentine's Day, and I'm sure it's not a coincidence. No, and so I'll go for the first month, and then, like, I'll see you next January. And so it was the same. The project was very, the, the food garden was very exciting at the beginning. And things started growing. And then December came, and everybody mm. wanted to go home for the holidays, and nobody really wanted to stay behind to take care of the garden. And it's still there. It's still the garden still exists. It's maybe not in its prime form, right? But the lesson for me was that it was that reflection. Why do I expect different, different behavior from others? Piece? Yes, that's a that's a fascinating double standard. And and okay. it's actually on the one hand, admitting that nobody's perfect gives everybody a lot of grace. Yeah. Because yeah, we we do expect like we have a higher expectation we feel guilty we do feel guilty about the things that we expect also of ourselves but but it's very easy to then set that aside and and, and look at the others and when it comes to sustainability a garden is the perfect example right because there are seasons and that's important to remember yeah. anyway and it's one of the lessons of especially food gardening because you're going to have your planting season and just taking care of it and waiting for things to happen and then boom there's a harvest it's the most exciting mm -hmm. thing, but especially vegetables, you're going to have to plant again if you yeah. want it to happen again, right? So it, it really is a, it's a lesson, it's a process. And for me, it's also, I mean, it was a reminder for me that it's never a good idea to impose yourself on somebody else. Mm. Right? Mm. And again, in the development world, uh, in this world where, where we know or feel as though we're doing all of this good, we're taking money from corporates and channeling it into great projects on the ground and serving the grassroots and all of this stuff. Um, it's very important to remember, sometimes people don't want our solutions. <laughs> right? How many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb kind of thing, right? right. The light bulb has to mm. want to change. Mm. No, for sure. So there's still a lot of, and it's very difficult. It's very diff I had this conversation with one of our, one of the students in one of our bursary programs years ago. And we designed this bursary program as we do. Like every corporate, I think in South Africa, especially if they're JSE listed right now, has a bursary program. Mm. We designed this bursary program 
and again, it was a, a team of high-performing individuals. I think that, that was our catchphrase at that stage, mm -hmm. designing this bursary program, the selection criteria and stuff. And the selection criteria that we decided on was the kid, the applicant, needed to have achieved 65% um, for maths and science in order to be accepted onto the bursary program, which is a tall ask, I realize now. And we got thousands of applications. How many of them qualified? None. <gasps> right. None of them. Right. None of them. Mm. Um, made the 65% in maths and science criteria. Right. And the reason we got so many applications is because this the company that we designed the program for made the applications available to a certain selection of their community, their customer base. Right. So it was customers, kids that were applying right. for the bursary program, not just the general populace. So it was quite important for them to award the bursaries because we can't now create these expectations with our customers. So we were given a task to, to well, I, I gave myself the task to kind of understand why nobody's meeting the 65% um, requirement. We had shortlisted mm -hmm. from the applicants we received based on their motivations and, and a couple of other things. And the one day... It is one of those like movie stories, right, where I picked up a stack of applications and the one kind of just fell <gasps> on the floor. My goodness. And I picked it up. It was a girl named Danero. And I looked at her application. It was beautiful. She had a better command of the English language than even I had. And her marks were great, like consistently great. But she consistently achieved like 59% and 61%. Not in the math and the science. In, in the math, well, consistently across all, all subject, subjects. And it didn't make sense to me from her essay, that she, letter of motivation that she wrote, for her to consistently get like between 59% and 61% for English in her, in her results. Like this is, this is a child that has a proper A student command of the English language. And this was pre-ChatGPT. Pre-ChatGPT. <laughs> and I mean, they didn't even have, it was a handwritten letter of motivation. So she didn't even have access to electronics, right? So I decided to call her in for an interview. Ah. Um, I wanted to give her a bursary from the letter of motivation and everything that I'd see. The, the, let, the testimonial letters that she got from her her people from church and her school principal and it was she's like phenomenal phenomenal person and I called her in and I asked her like so we went through the interview process and then I asked her I was like I, I see that your your marks are consistently this have you ever thought about trying a bit harder or you know because you can clearly achieve what's happening yeah a bit more what's what's going on and she says to me it must be it's very very hard in my environment to be successful and I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, it must be easy for you because you're surrounded by success every day. So you assume that success is fine. In my environment, success is not fine. If you succeed too much, if you perform too well, you stand out and then you get hammered back in. Um, and then I realized, like, it was, a, it was like, it's a core memory for me because I realized in that moment that that's exactly it. If you grew, grow up in an environment where success is normal, mm. you are more likely to be successful because you know what it looks and tastes and feels like and nobody's going to bully you 
or mm. or make fun of you or mock you because you are successful. It's the aspiration. Right. But not standing out is the aspiration in other environments. Um, no, because if you're in an environment where you are successful and everybody else is successful, then you don't really stand out. R- correct. Correct. Yes. Right. And yes. for a teenager, even though teenagers say that they want to be unique and everything, they really don't. Mm. You know? mm-hmm. It's not comfortable to, be, to get noticed. It's not comfortable at all to get noticed. Right. Visionaries understand that. <laughs> it's, it's hard to step out. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, Danao taught me that you have to look a little bit deeper when you are uh, assessing those bursary applications. Mm. Because it took her a lot of effort to maintain her marks in a range that wouldn't stand out. So I'm curious to know if she got the bursary and what she happened next. She did get the bursary. She's still at university. She's succeeding. She got a... So the bursary funded her undergraduate... Um, and then she's gotten bursaries to do postgraduate <gasps> studies. Wow. She's done a master's. She's currently doing a doctorate. And maybe that put her in the environment where actually achieving was not frowned upon. Completely. <gasps> Completely. Wow. wow. And, and there's so much about that that speaks to our self-concept. And uh, it, it's very easy to, to not be aware of... What environment? Just how big the the impact is that an environment can have on that? That yeah. is tremendous. I could ask you about a million more stories because I know you've mm. got so many good ones. But I'm hoping more people are going to hear them from the stage because you have recently started um, making your speaking services that you've mm. been offering so generously throughout your career. Just incidentally, and um, it, it's now more available and there are more chances to hear you speak on stage because you have just got such a wealth of wisdom to share. Uh, Kalisha, can you tell us a bit about the topics that you speak on before we wrap up? So my favorite topics, I think, center around the concepts of transformation, sustainability and inclusion and the interconnectedness of those three concepts um, like from an, from an individual level but also from a business industry or economic mm-hmm. level because they're mm-hmm. very interrelated concepts mm-hmm. um, yeah so, so those are my favorite topics to talk about Absolutely fantastic. And they're all so relevant at the moment. Um, These are conversations that have been important, but for a long time they were kind of simmering under the surface. And the the world of business, the world of governance, um, so many more of us have opened up and been exposed to the idea that these are now important things we need to talk about. And, and that's a really, really exciting development. And I love the way you give a voice to it. And it is just such a privilege to, to share in your vision, to share in all these incredible things that you do, the, the fantastic network of people that you have. Every time that I see the conversations that you have and the stages that you're speaking on and, and the people that you connect with and the messages that you share and the way that this just goes across the different, it's like a a horizontal, there's the breadth and there's the depth of all these different elements and this richness that you bring. It's just such a gift and it goes far, far, far beyond the description of what I'd expect of a 
development economist. <laughs> you, you really are an asset to the profession and you're an asset to our society and you're an asset to the League of Visionaries podcast. I want to thank you so very much, Kanisha. Before we close, I'd love to ask you four visionaries who feel the call, who hear the call, what is the message that you would leave them with? For visionaries, I really think that our time is now. I think that the days of being careful and cautious and smart about our goals and dreams and ambitions are kind of over. I think it's time to be audacious. I think it's time to take bold steps in the direction that we believe um, we should be moving in. Um, and I, I think more than ever, I think it's the right time to to collaborate, to seek each other out, to build this network. That is so exciting. Thank you so much for being on this show. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't wait to see you on more stages and making this incredible difference. Thank you, Kalnisha. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the League of Visionaries podcast by Yazi Media. Proudly brought to you by Totally Morpheus. Subscribe to the League of Visionaries podcast here on your favorite podcasting platform and follow Yazi Media on LinkedIn to find out more about how you can share your visionary message with the world. If you are a visionary, chances are you are also a leader. But what is your current leadership state? The way you are leading right now, your default setting if you will. The Egg 3 Leadership Assessment helps you to understand the way you lead, your strengths, and your potential challenges as a leader. And most importantly, how to create your unique leadership legacy. It's fast. It's fun. It's free. It's the Egg 3 Leadership Assessment from Totally Morpheus. And when you take this assessment, you will get an instant report right away, pointing the way to your living leadership legacy. Find the Egg 3 Leadership Assessment now at totallymorpheus.com.